0: Thank you for listening to the Soul City Church podcast. Be sure to follow us on our Facebook and Instagram at Soul City Church. For more information, visit us on our website, soulcitychurch.com. All right, good morning. Sounds like we have a lot of favorite Christmas carols out there. Let me echo my friends Jeannie and Patrick saying we are so glad that you guys are here with us today at Soul City Church. My name is is Sean and one of our pastors here, and thank you for coming on this balmy summer day, by the way. You know, when it's 49 degrees in January, or December, I'm jumping ahead, okay? In December, I thought people would be at the beach or something, taking advantage of the nice weather. We're glad that you guys are here. I'm going to be continuing on in our Advent series that we're calling A Thrill of Hope. And in case you weren't with us last week, I want to give you a bit of a recap Of some of the things that we talked about, as well as why Advent is important, that we can't just skip right over and get to Christmas. We want to sit in this season. Nancy Beach did a great job last week as we looked at the candle of hope. You see it's lit over there, and what Nancy showed us is that Advent is about waiting and holding out hope. I know that for many people in this room, you have plenty of different experiences with Advent. Maybe you had heard that term before, or you knew that it was generally related to Christmas, but you didn't really grow up um, in a tradition or a faith or in a family that practiced Advent. So you, you have some familiarity with it, or... There might be others of you who grew up going to a church that really loved Advent. And you loved the wreaths that were out and the candles. And a lot of churches have like purple banners and it's like really regal. And so maybe that's how you know Advent. Or maybe for others of you, you had one of those Advent calendars, right? Where you get to eat a piece of chocolate every day. Okay, that's what you know about Advent is I get to eat chocolate. You're like, oh, I'm into Advent, right? Yeah, that works for me. Actually, uh, just this last week, On the, you know, the satirical website, The Onion, you know, has fake news stories, right? Uh, It said, local man only eats three Advent calendars. What a big deal, right? (laughs) That he only ate three entire Advent calendars. And so, wherever you fall on that spectrum, you love Advent, you love chocolate, we're glad that you're here today and talking about this Advent series because. Advent is important because it brings us into something different than our typical holiday mode, which is characterized by overwhelming busyness. Isn't it crazy how stressful this month of December, I got that right now, this month of December can be, even with things that on the surface are seemingly good. We have to make times to get presents for everyone on our list. Who feels good about where their shopping list is at for Christmas? Yeah, three people, okay? Um <laughs> We gotta you know go to the stores, you gotta spend too much time on Amazon looking, right? You have to go to your work Christmas party. And then you also have to go to your friend's ugly sweater Christmas party, which is different than that. And then you gotta make some time for your family too, right? In Christmas, a couple family Christmas activities, decorate the tree. You gotta get pictures with Santa. You gotta go to the walnut room for lunch, right? These are the things that happen in Chicago we have to do. Or maybe maybe yesterday you were at the Christmas store. A great thing, but it took up a lot of your time. And then, you know, you have to go to your spouse's or your boyfriend or your girlfriend's work Christmas party. and You don't know any of those people, and you got to go to that. And then your spouse's friend's ugly sweater Christmas party, and you're just running from place to place, celebration to celebration, without taking a breath. And we have to be happy and fun and in the holiday spirit, optimistic. We have to love shiny objects and sugar and all these things without ever taking a breath. To take it all in. When we choose to recognize, when we choose to practice and really sit in Advent, take that breath, <sighs> we are choosing a countercultural experience. Just a few weeks ago, there was an article in the New York Times about Advent. Nancy did a great job telling us about the history of Advent. This looked at that as well. But one of the best things that the article said is that Advent is the remedy that our souls need for the busyness of the American Christmas consumer mindset. Does that resonate with anyone? That Advent is what our souls need for the busyness of the American Christmas consumer mindset. And that is why Advent is so crucial. It draws us to put our focus onto what is important when so many other things try and take our eyes off the prize. And so today, spoiler alert, I want to tell you where we're going to end up. We are going to light the second candle of Advent, which commemorates faith. In some traditions, this candle is known as the Bethlehem candle because it represents the faithful preparations that Mary and Joseph, that they made on their journey to Bethlehem. And what is so powerful about practicing Advent and sitting in Advent, lighting this candle today, is we actually get to join in with millions of people around the world lighting this very same candle, commemorating faith, commemorating this journey, and we get to be a part of God's bigger story and bigger work in the world. And this theme of faith faith, that we are addressing today, it is an interesting topic because we kind of know what faith is but have a hard time describing it. right? Think about what your definition of faith would be. You're like, oh, it's kind of like this thing. It's maybe a religious thing. I, I put my faith in God or something like that. It can be tough to figure it out. And what I think that is interesting about faith, even when we can't define it, even when we might not think that we are very good at faith, is that you, in fact, are better at faith than you think. You're already doing it in so many ways. You put your faith in things. You put your faith in people, whether or not you know about So how many of you drove your car to Soul City today, right? Yeah. You got in, you put your keys in, and you put your faith that that car was going to start, right? It isn't quite zero degrees yet. We're going to get that in a few weeks. Sometimes you're like, oh, shoot, I don't know if this thing is going to start right now. Or you got in your car, and you got in the road, and then you know what you did is you put your faith in those other drivers. You put your faith that they were not going to hit you, right? Or, or maybe you took an Uber here today. Um, all growing up, we're told not to get in cars with strangers, right? <laughs> and then you put your faith in Justin with 4.6 stars, right? You're like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I should put my faith in you. Or, or maybe have you thought that, that other people are putting their faith in you? But that is one way to think about faith. Or when you travel and you take an airplane, are you the type of person that puts your faith in the airline and you check your bag? That is not me, okay? (laughs) I do not believe if I let my bag out of my sight that it's going to be where I need it to be, okay? I do not trust that they are going to take good care of my bag. Just a few weeks ago, uh, my wife and I, we went to Texas to celebrate Thanksgiving with my in-laws. And again, I am team carry-on, which she hates, right? She, she loves to check it. She's not super light packer. But we, we had to check our bags because you cannot carry on your golf clubs, okay? I can't, it doesn't fit in the overhead compartment. You have to check those. And I know not everyone here plays golf. This is not the most relatable thing. So let me tell you about my golf clubs, okay? my golf clubs are my most prized possession. (laughs) They mean more to me than anything else that I own. So if you are a parent, think of them like your children, okay? (laughs) How you think of your children, how I think of my golf, or maybe your favorite child, okay? That is how I think about my golf clubs. They bring me joy. They bring me happiness, right? And I had to put my faith in an airlines, as Nancy Beach said, you know, it rhymes with mouth vest, okay? I'm not going to say what it is, okay? I put my faith that they would take care of my babies, okay? And they let me down. They let me down. I'm just standing there at the carousel convincing myself, Sean, just keep the faith. Keep the faith. They, these are friendly people. They have great customer service. Keep the faith in mouth vest, right? only to find out they never even put them on the airplane. It was devastating, it was a crisis of faith for me, okay? <laughs> Thankfully, I appealed to a higher power, God, and prayed for my golf clubs, and they came in the mail a few days later. It has been resolved, I am okay. I didn't tell the end of that story in the first service, and people were like, what happened? <laughs> Did your golf clubs come? It's like, oh yeah, sorry, I forgot to mention that. <laughs> But yes, I put my faith in them and they let me down. But when it comes to God, we tend to get weird around faith. We know that it might be central or essential to a relationship with God, uh, but we don't, we just, it's strange to us. We don't think we have a big enough faith or a good enough faith or a strong enough faith, or if we're even doing this faith thing right. We can't define it as faith representative of some big type of decision. You either have it or you don't? Is it a way of life? Is it something that you practice? So we're going to explore that today, looking at a portion of the Christmas story, story, talking about two of its central characters, Mary and Joseph. We don't know a ton about them, especially Joseph. Mary shows up throughout Scripture later in Jesus' life, but here is what we do know: We know that Joseph was a carpenter. He was not very wealthy. He was a pretty ordinary guy. Mary was also poor, She was probably around 14 years old, which is hard in our culture, but that was uh, a normal age in that culture at the time, even though it feels weird to us. They were engaged to one another, but not yet married. Proceeding our text today, as Jeannie talked about, um, an angel appears to Mary to let her know that she is going to have a baby that's going to be the savior of the world. She processes this news with her cousin Elizabeth, with Joseph, And we get to the point in the story we're going to look at today. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 2, which is found on page 832. There's a Bible underneath your seat, around your seat, if you're up in the balcony. That is on page 832. Here is what the text says. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Okay, free Bible tip. If you don't know how to say a word, confidence is key, okay? (laughs) Quirinius, that's what we're going with, right? Everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So one of the first things here as we look at the Gospel of Luke and Luke writing this test, the first thing that he does is he places Jesus squarely in history with the reference to Caesar Augustus. If you recall back to your world history class, who remembers world history in high school? Not many takers, okay? Um, If you recall back to that, Caesar Augustus, he was known as Octavian, and he was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Yeah, we've heard of him, Shakespeare, et tu, Brute, right? He was the first Caesar to be called Augustus, which means holy or revered or godly. He literally convinced the Roman Senate to give him this name, which before him was a title that was reserved exclusively for the gods. So Luke mentioning Caesar Augustus as he tells about the birth of Jesus is 100% deliberate. Luke wants us to see that in the world, it had at its helm a self-proclaimed, widely accepted God and Savior. And he wanted to contrast it with the coming of the real Savior. Even as Luke was writing, Roman cities around the empire had already adopted Caesar's birthday as the start of the new year, and they would commemorate it as the day that the Savior came into the world. Does that sound familiar? The day that the Savior came into the world. So Luke is contrasting this. He's using the literary device of juxtaposition, showing these two things in contrast to one another. And so Caesar, he orders a census to be taken, and everyone has to return home to be counted. And why is this census being taken? Everyone's favorite thing in the world, taxes. Woo! April 15th, right? So taxes is everyone's favorite topic and thing to talk about. Caesar, he wanted to make sure that he had an accurate count of all of his subjects to make sure enough money was coming back to the empire, enough money was coming back to Caesar. And so that is where Joseph has to go. He has to go back to his hometown of Bethlehem because He is from the line of David. But of course, he isn't going to leave Mary behind. She was probably at least eight months pregnant, nearing full term. And just think about how annoyed they would have been by this. Surely they had been preparing for Jesus to come. They had made all the necessary preparations. They had painted the nursery blue, right? They were ready for that. They had purchased the upper baby stroller, all the attachments, practiced it out, right? And they were all ready for Jesus to come. And then there's the census. Surely they have better things to do than than spending over a week traveling to Bethlehem. It was about 90 miles to Bethlehem. And for context, that's about the same distance from here to Milwaukee. And they have to go from the northern part of Israel in Galilee. We've heard of the Sea of Galilee, right? To go all the way from up there, down along the Jordan River, then back up through the hills and mountains surrounding Jerusalem just to get to Bethlehem. Much of the journey would have been in the desert, traveling 10-plus miles per day. And did I mention that Mary is eight months pregnant, right? Listen, my wife and I do not have any children outside of the golf clubs, right? And (laughs) one day we hope to, so I can't speak from personal experience, but I have a hunch that this was not a super fun journey. Um, Mary, being eight months pregnant, would not have enjoyed that, would not have enjoyed the heat and the cold, and it would have been really rough. I don't think Joseph really enjoyed it either. By the time they got there, anybody married and have a a hard time? Some days you're like, oh, I love you. I'm going to choose it, but I don't like you right now. Okay, I think that is how Mary and Joseph were feeling when they got to Bethlehem. And so why is this journey important? Why did they need to go to Bethlehem? And we see that God is taking Mary and Joseph's small act of faithfulness and magnifying it for his purposes their small act of faithfulness, of going to Bethlehem, and he was magnifying it for his purposes. In the Old Testament, in one of the prophetic books of Micah, there is a prophecy about the future Messiah. You don't have to turn to it. It's going to come up here on the screen, but it says this in chapter 5. It says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Second Bible trick skip a word if you really don't know how to say it, okay? (laughs) Just pretend it's not there, okay? Just pretend it's not there, right? I don't know how you say that word. I can't even come up with a confident word, right? But all along, all along, God's plan was for the Savior of the world to be born in Bethlehem. 700 years before, before the birth of Jesus, God had spoken to his people through the prophet Micah. So yes, the census definitely intruded on Mary and Joseph's preparations, and I'm going to assume Mary's very detailed birth plan about what that was going to look like. But we begin to see how God uses our small acts of faith in his bigger story. He interrupts our plans for his purposes. And maybe you felt that in your life before. You have a plan about how things should be going or that this should happen and you should have this raise or this relationship and that you felt like that plan is not lining up. It's the same thing for Mary and Joseph because this poor couple's forced journey to Bethlehem just to pay taxes would set the stage for the fulfillment of a messianic prophecy. While they appeared to be helpless pawns caught um, in, up in secular history, every movement was under the hand of an almighty God. While the Roman Roman world was ruled by a self-proclaimed God, the one true God was using Caesar to bring about his purposes. Caesar was a man who had become a God, but Mary was carrying the God who had become a man. There were all kinds of reasons for them to stop, all kinds of reasons to let Caesar had become a God, get in the way of the one true God. And what we see in Mary and Joseph is that having faith is not the absence of doubt, but the abundance of trust. Having faith is not the absence of doubt, but the abundance of trust. Because Mary and Joseph, they aren't any different than you and me. Certainly, their faith is admirable. But we can be prone to putting them on a pedestal, because we think that there are these biblical characters, and we assume that they have complete faith in God. They never doubt. They never wonder. It happened in some of the texts preceding ours today, but even when Mary is visited by the angel Gabriel, she tells him that she is going to give birth to Jesus, she doubts him at first. She says, how is this going to happen, right? Uh, she tells him about this baby that she is going to have, and Mary says, hey, here's the thing. I may be 14, but I know how babies are made, okay? And I have not participated in that. as a family program. We're not going to say any more than that. But I cannot have a baby, right? But eventually, Mary, she gets to the place where she says, I'm in. She gets to the place where she says, may it be. But it doesn't come until she asks her questions. It doesn't come until she expresses her doubt and her skepticism. And it's the same thing for Joseph. After hearing that his fiance was pregnant, supposedly by the Holy Spirit, right? You're like, oof, that's a new one. (laughs) I haven't heard that one before, right? I've read it by the Holy Spirit, right? He he expresses his doubts. He thinks long and hard about that. And I'm sure he had a million thoughts running through his mind. Do I believe that? That's crazy. But ultimately, Mary and Joseph, they decide to put their trust and their faith in a God who keeps his promises. It wasn't easy. Their choice to choose faith didn't mean they had no doubts, but they trusted God. And that was the first step on their journey of doing the next right thing, which was to go to Bethlehem. what we also see is that even before Mary and Joseph responded with trust and faith, God put his faith in them. Have you ever thought of it that way, that God trusted two first-time parents, a poor carpenter and a 14-year-old? What 14-year-olds do you know that you've like super trust, right? With carrying the Savior of the world raising him as a child, caring for him. If we're studying their resumes, we pass. We don't get an interview, okay, right? But just as God put his faith in Mary and Joseph, God has put his faith in you. Just as he put his faith in Mary and Joseph, God has put his faith in you, and each one of you, in each one of us. Mary and Joseph, they had their part to play in the story. They had to carry this baby, go to Bethlehem, name him Jesus that was their part to play and now you and I have a part to play too and it's almost unbelievable that God puts his faith in us to accomplish his purposes again our resumes not that strong right but he uses us to bring about his kingdom and that can be hard for me to square up with how i feel sometimes maybe you're the same i don't feel as if i have enough faith for god to use me as a part of some Bigger plan. And this actually makes me think about a mentor in my life named Paul. Paul is one of the main reasons why I am here today. Paul is probably the biggest reason why I am a pastor. And back in the day, Paul was a youth pastor at a church in the neighborhood I grew up in. Paul had grown up in England, he had been a stud soccer player. But as he started his job as a youth pastor, he made a small but faith filled decision which was to coach soccer at our local high school. He wanted to be present with students. He wanted people to know that he was someone that they could count on, that he was fun, that he was someone that you could put your faith into. And wouldn't you know it, but some punk kid named Sean Del Baccaro would show up on the freshman soccer team and Paul's small act of faithfulness would change my life forever. That I would come to know Jesus because of his faith and his small act of faithfulness, his gift and his passion for soccer and coaching. He had given that to God and that I know Jesus because of that, that he completely changed my life and hundreds of other students who have gone on to play their part in the bigger story, that I would not be here today if it wasn't for Paul's small act of faithfulness that he didn't know would be magnified by God for his purposes. We see in the lives of Mary and Joseph that the whole plan, it rested on their little faith. The plan for the Savior of the world rested on their faith. Their small acts of obedience, their small acts of faithfulness. And now God's plan rests on us. It rests on you and it rests on me and on our faithfulness. Because God moves his kingdom forward through his people. You see it in Jesus' coming. You see it in Jesus' departing. God's faith in his disciples, how he sent them out. And now he sends us out into the world. Just try and wrap your head around that. That God has faith in you to build his kingdom. And it starts with choosing to trust the one who has already put his trust in you. So we begin to see that faith, it isn't about grand gestures. It isn't about big scenes or necessarily even big decisions. Faith is in the ordinary. Faith is in the everyday. Faith is trusting that God is working even when you don't see it, even when you are filled with doubt. Faith is put in motion when we move from belief to action. It's not about just right thinking. Faith is being faithful in these little decisions, knowing that God will bless them in big ways. Mary and Joseph had no idea their small act of faith going to Bethlehem, what that would mean in the bigger story. But what we see is that God, he takes our small acts of faithfulness and magnifies them for his purposes. Our small acts of faithfulness, God takes those and magnifies them for his purposes. Later on in the Gospels, Jesus tells us the only faith that we need is the size of a mustard seed. Absolutely tiny. That is the only faith we need. Even with that small amount of faith, we can move mountains. So my question for you is, what would change this Christmas season if you really believed that God believed in you? What would change in you if you really believed that God believed in you? Or or maybe put it another way, how might your faith be different if you knew that God has faith in you? That God even brings the Holy Spirit inside of you to help make those decisions, How might you work differently, treat your coworkers, treat your employees, treat your bosses? How might your relationships be different with friends, romantic relationships, your marriage? How might your decision-making process, how you decide what to do next, how would those be different if you knew that God already has faith in you to do the next right thing? Faith is walking in step with the Spirit, even when we don't have all of the answers. And sometimes faith looks like an angel showing up to you and telling you you're going to give birth to the Savior of the world, and you have a lot of questions. You don't understand that. You end up choosing trust and saying, may it be, I am the Lord's servant. Other times, faith looks like following the laws of the land and returning home to be counted for a census, for taxes, and God changing the world because of it. Still, other times it's supporting your spouse, even when everything else tells you to get out of that relationship or to bail. Sometimes it means extending kindness to that family member who really doesn't deserve it, especially after what they said at Thanksgiving, right? Yeah. Sometimes faith is in the daily decision to find time to connect with God. Sometimes it means giving your best energy and effort to a job that you might not be at much longer. Sometimes faith is choosing to coach a soccer team at OPRF High School and not knowing what God is going to do with it. Sometimes faith is being generous even when it's a hard financial season, but it always includes that God will use these small moments of faithfulness to bring about his kingdom even if we can't see the whole picture. In just a moment we're going to light the candle of faith. But I think This candle, it's already burning. It's a helpful metaphor for us as well. Because each time that we put our faith into action, even in these small moments, we light little candles of faith in our own life. As we look around and we see other people lighting their own candles as well, we see that the light continues to build. And then we each take these moments of faithfulness, these moments of lighting our own candles, and see how God takes those small flames to bring light into the world. With hope, which we talked about last week, that's held in our hearts, but faith, it's found in our actions. We see it in the actions of Mary and Joseph, how they moved forward in faith, even in the absence of answers. In the book of Hebrews, faith is described as the substance of what we hope for in the evidence of things we do not see. We can't always see faith. We can't always see the whole picture we can believe that God is working in our blindness. Because choosing faith is how we partner with God in the world. The daily decisions of faith that we make are how we help bring about and usher in the kingdom of God today. Mother Teresa, she puts it this way. She says, God does not demand I be successful. God demands that I be faithful. When facing God, results are not important faithfulness is what's important and we live in a world that is so based on success and results and influence and we're in the season right now that's based on busyness and hurry what we see is that God most desires our faithfulness in the midst of this and one of the ways in which we regularly mark our faithfulness around here to God is by celebrating communion In communion, we recognize that God's plan all along, it started in the manger, but that it would lead to the cross. That through Jesus, God demonstrated that we can count on him to be faithful and he is worthy of our faith. And so I'd love to invite our communion team forward to begin passing the elements. And here's what we want you guys. So we want you to grab a piece of bread and to grab a cup and to just... Hold on to them for a few moments as everyone gets it. We're going to take those all together. While we do that, a couple other instructions for you. One is I'm going to light this candle of faith for us, marking the truth that God has faith in us and all he asks is for our faithfulness back in him. But the other thing I want you to do is to take this moment to pause. We don't get a lot of silence or quiet during this Advent and Christmas season. And I want you to reflect on one way this week you can put your faithfulness in the God who has put his faith in you already. And then we'll come back together and take the elements. 1 Corinthians 11 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes would you stand and pray with me grateful for this opportunity to pause and to sit and to rest in your presence. God, we thank you that even though we don't deserve it or we haven't earned it, God, that you have put your faith in us, that you are a God who keeps his promises that you partner with us, that to build up our faith in order to build your kingdom. And so we thank you, God, that you have given us this opportunity to live our lives in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.